Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He's looking at you, kid. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking. Oh, well, what do you want to do that for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Welcome to 99 Years, 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order and see why that film was so highly regarded. I'm Trey Hooks, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Blaine Dowler. How are you today, Blaine? I'm doing well. How about you? Good, thank you. This time around, we're looking at the 41st Annual Academy Awards, covering films released in 1968, and the Best Picture winner of that year, Oliver, directed by Carol Reed. Oliver, based on the musical of the same name, premiered on September 26, 1968, and featured Mark Lester as Oliver, Jack Wilde as Artful Dodger, Ron Moody as Fagan, Shawnee Wallace as Nancy, and Oliver Reed as Bill Sykes. The film's screenplay was written by Vernon Harris, adapted from the novel Oliver Twist. Our synopsis comes from the fine folks at Wikipedia. Uh, I'll begin by just letting our listeners know that Oliver, uh, as I stated, is a, a musical. Hopefully, if you're listening to this episode, you've already seen it, but if you haven't, it opens with an overture, and has a two-act structure. Act 1 opens at a workhouse in Dunstable. The governors hold a sumptuous banquet while the orphans are served their daily gruel and dream of enjoying food, glorious food, which is the opening number of the musical. Forced by some of the boys who draw lots, where the long ones drawn by Oliver, to approach Mr. Bumble and Widow Corey, Oliver asks them for more to eat. Enraged, Bumble takes Oliver to the governor's for punishment, which leads us into the number Oliver. Paraded in the street to be sold to the highest bidder, boy for sale, Oliver is purchased by an undertaker, Mr. Sourberry. When his jealous apprentice, Noah Claypole, insults Oliver's dead mother, Oliver attacks him and is thrown by the undertaker's wife, Noah, and Noah's girlfriend into a coffin until Mr. Bumble arrives to explain to them that Oliver should have been fed gruel instead of meat. Mr. Bumble grabs Oliver out of the casket and throws him into the cellar. Alone in the dark, surrounded by empty coffins, Oliver wonders, where is love, another musical number, before escaping through a window grate. After a week on the road, Oliver reaches London. He meets the artful Dodger, who takes him under his wing, during the musical number Consider Yourself, Dodger brings Oliver to a hideout for young pickpockets led by Fagin, who instructs the gang in the art of stealing, declaring that you've got to pick a pocket or two to get by. Fagin later meets with Bill Sykes, a burglar. Sykes' girlfriend Nancy ponders her life. It's a fine life. When Fagin returns to his den, he opens a secret wall where the box of valuables are kept talking to an owl until Oliver wakes up, startling Fagin who explains to Oliver that his treasures were for his old age before tucking him back in and seeing him to sleep. In the morning, Nancy and her friend Bet arrive at the house to, at the hideout, excuse me, to collect Sykes' money. The boys mock Oliver for his 
manners which Nancy finds charming. Dodger attempts to be just as gentlemanly, the musical number I'll Do Anything. Fagin sends the boys out for the day, entrusting Oliver to Dodger, leading into the song Be Back Soon. Dodger steals a wallet from Mr. Brownlow, but Oliver is apprehended instead. Fearing Oliver will lead the police to the gang, Fagin and Sykes send Nancy to court. Oliver is too terrified to speak, but before the verdict is finalized, a witness named Mr. Jessup, the owner of the bookstall where Brownlow had been shopping just before the robbery, arrives and proclaims Oliver's innocence. Brownlow takes Oliver in while Sykes and Fagin send Dodger to follow them to Nancy's displeasure. Following an intermission, Act 2 begins with Oliver waking up in Mr. Brownlow's house and happily watching from his balcony the merchants and inhabitants of Bloomsbury Square singing about this particular beautiful morning, the song Who Will Buy. Meanwhile, Fagin and Sykes decide to abduct Oliver and bring him back to the den with Nancy's help. Nancy, who comes to care for Oliver, at first refuses to help, but Sykes physically abuses her, forcing her into obedience. In spite of this, Nancy still loves Sykes and believes he loves her too, as she expresses in her song, As Long As He Needs Me. The next morning at Mr. Brownlow's house in Bloomsbury, Mr. Brownlow sends Oliver to return some books with a five-pound note to the booksellers. Before he departs, Oliver notices a portrait painting of a beautiful young girl. Mr. Brownlow notes Oliver's resemblance to the girl, his niece Emily, who disappeared years ago. He begins to suspect he may be Oliver's great-uncle. As Oliver stops to enjoy a puppet show with other children, Nancy and Sykes appear and grab Oliver. They bring him back to Fagin's den, where Sykes quarrels and demands the five-pound note from Fagin for all the trouble Sykes went through to kidnap Oliver, while telling Fagin he can keep the books. After Oliver slaps Sykes, Sykes is about to hit him with a belt until Nancy saves Oliver from a beating from Sykes after the boy tries to flee. Nancy remorsefully reviews their life, but Bill, Bill maintains that any living is better than none. Fagin tries to act as an intermediary, suggesting to Sykes to calmly sit and talk things out. However, Sykes takes Fagin by the scruff of his neck, warning him that if anyone led the authorities to their hideout, Sykes would kill Fagin. At this instant, Fagin declares Sykes to be a violent man. Left alone, Fagin wonders what his life might be like if he became an honest man, the number reviewing the situation. However, after thinking of various excuses, he elects to remain a thief. Bumble and Corny, now Mrs. Bumble, pay a visit to Mr. Brownlow after he begins searching for Oliver's origin. They present a locket belonging to Oliver's mother, who arrived at the workhouse penniless and died during childbirth. Mr. Brownlow recognizes the locket as his nieces and throws the two out, enraged that they selfishly chose to keep the trinket and information to themselves until they could collect a reward for it. Meanwhile, in an attempt to introduce Oliver to a life of crime, Sykes forces Oliver to take part in a house robbery. The robbery fails when Oliver accidentally awakens the occupants, but he and Sykes get away. While Sykes and Oliver are gone, Nancy, fearful for Oliver's life, goes to Mr. Brownlow, confessing her part in Oliver's kidnapping. However, she refuses to state the name of Fagan or Sykes. She promises to return him to Mr. Brownlow at midnight at London Bridge. Then she goes to the tavern. When Sykes and Oliver appear, Sykes orders his dog Bullseye to guard the boy. Nancy starts up a lively drinking song, Oom Papa, hoping that the noise will distract Sykes. 
Bullseye, however, alerts Sykes, who gives chase. As Oliver and Nancy share a farewell embrace at London Bridge, Sykes catches up and grabs both of them and throws Oliver aside. Nancy then tries to pull Sykes away from Oliver, angering Sykes. He drags her behind the staircase of London Bridge and violently bludgeons her, injuring her fatally. He then takes off with Oliver, but Bullseye returns to the scene and alerts the police. The dog leads Mr. Brownlow and an angry mob to the thieves' hideout. Sykes arrives at Fagin's den and demands money, revealing that he killed Nancy as well. Upon seeing the approaching mob, the thieves disband and flee. Sykes runs off with Oliver, using him as a hostage. During the escape, Fagin loses his prized possessions, which sink into mud. Sykes attempts to flee to an adjacent roof, but is shot dead in the process by the police. Fagin makes up his mind to change his way for, ways for good. Just as he's about to walk away a reformed character, Dodger steps out from behind a post box with a lined wallet he stole earlier. They dance off into the sunrise together, happily determined to live out the rest of their days of, as thieves, while Oliver returns to Mr. Brownlow's home for good. So, Blaine, what did you think of Oliver? This is the first time I'd seen it in a long time. I do know I saw at least some of it as a child, but it's been decades. I don't even remember if I sat through the whole thing because it's probably under 10. I was very impressed with the scope and scale of it. And this is near the tail end of the musical, but you have to keep escalating in a genre to keep people engaged sometimes, and that's clearly what's happened. Right, we've had some wonderful musicals, but this... A lot of these have scales. Pretty much all the outdoor songs are on the scale of like the ballet from An American in Paris with possibly hundreds of extras um, to the point that it gets special recognition that we'll talk to when we get to the awards for this year. So yeah, it it is a good movie. There's no question about that. I've had some misgivings about this year, which we will discuss later on. But most of those are in um, which nominees were omitted. And yeah, this is one that I can easily see being on that ballot. I agree. This this has long been a childhood favorite of mine, and it's it, it's one of those to where the songs have stayed with me. You know, I easily haven't seen it in a decade, but while I can't sing them entirely, I know the chorus of "Pick up, you got to pick a pocket or two or consider yourself um, even who will buy, you know. So I, I think it's got some great musical numbers that have stayed with me. You're right about the scope. I don't know that the synopsis quite does it justice, but for example, in Consider Yourself, easily an entire borough of <laughs> London uh, break out in song and dance. And similarly during, you know, who will buy it is literally all of the houses on that street and all of the vendors and the school children etc so and i i don't think that it gets top but i do think it sets kind of the new standard when you see the film the albert finney musical scrooge in 1970 which i think reused a lot of the sets um from oliver i i think it was you trying did. yeah i think it was trying to be very much in the same vein or even the opening number to like the great Muppet capered where all of New York, you know, essentially does a song and dance number. I, I think those are all continuing escalations from this point. 
I do, you know, kind of shifting to the cast, I do think this film succeeds on the weight of Ron Moody's shoulders. That's a big part of it. The child actors were strong, and I was very surprised to see that this musical also had that um, As Long As He Needs Me, Mm -hmm. that particular song, we clearly see that Nancy and Sykes are in an abusive relationship, but we also see Nancy using logic which is not atypical to justify staying because of what she wants to mean to him and where she wants to see him going. So it was interesting to see that show up as, you know, a giant red flag. So other women who may be in similar relationships, it's not worth staying. Yeah, you know, I I found that that really kind of shown through to me on this watch. And some of it's probably just, you know, the maturity that comes with age. This is not um, a 100% faithful adaptation of Oliver Twist. Probably because of the popularity of this film and musical, it hits all the high notes that I think most people um, think of. And I know it goes quite a long way to Softens Fagan, but there's still a lot of adult themes in this. It's not its not like they, you know, completely defanged it thematically to make it a family film. Yeah, it, it did get toned down a little bit, but it, at least that's my understanding. I haven't actually read the original. I don't know how much that was for this because the if we go to the writing credits, there's actually a bit of a chain here. Mm-hmm. So we have Charles Dickens' Oliver Twist, and then Lionel Bart freely adapted that into his book Oliver, and then Vernon Harris or turned that this actually the screenplay. So Lionel Bart made a book named Oliver, turned that into a musical stage play, and then Vernon Harris turned the stage play into the film. But what I found interesting, and I, I couldn't dig up anything particular on it, in the credits, they didn't credit Vernon Harris as adapting the screenplay from the play. They credited it as adapting it from the novel. Yeah. So maybe he didn't work from the actual play script. Maybe he also said, well, it's been turned into a play, and he just started from the novel. I, I, so like I said, I could, but I'm, I'm like you, I would have... Ass- I would have assumed that it would have been I took the book and then I adapted the book into a a screenplay. But at least the way they put it in the opening credits of the film, that's not the way they credited it. No. Okay. wonder what is going on behind the scenes there. Most of the cast was... I mean, really the the only other, I'm going to kind of say maybe known names, known names from the cast, or, you know, you've got Oliver Reed as Bill Sykes, you know, who we'll discuss, you know, many episodes from now um, when we cover Gladiator. But this, uh, he had done the Hammer films, but this was kind of what launched, what launched him kind of larger outside of England in terms of his career. And we have Hugh Griffith returning to the podcast for the third time as the magistrate, though. He wasn't bad as the magistrate, but I felt it was this was m- more one of those let's have a big name and a small part to kind of draw more attention to the film casting stunts, I think, because you had so many unknowns. You know, Ron Moody was relatively new to film. He had been in the 
stage play and the on West End and on Broadway. Shawnee Wellis, who played Nancy, had not done a lot of film work, and this was some of the first work for the actors who played Oliver and the art for the Artful Dodger. So you didn't have a lot of names to kind of latch on to for the marketing of this film. No, not a huge amount. And, you know, Hugh Griffith does it well, although that's one of the ones where it seems like they took possibly one of the more adult themes from the novel and turned it into a running gag as he pours himself a drink and keeps doing various things to hide the fact that he's drinking on the job. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we so you're right that we have some prominent names in small roles, which is also a sign of quality casting. I mean, even Oliver Reed, he had to fight with his uncle to even be considered for this part, his uncle Carol Reed being the director. So he still had to go through the same audition process as everybody else. So when he won the part, it wasn't straight up nepotism. He had earned that role. Right. And and he's great in it, but y- you know how you know how things make such an impression on you when you're younger? I know I realize that he's also played a lot of villainous roles, but he always was a brute to me because of you know, my first impression of him being Bill Sykes and Oliver. Yeah. And you're right, we will definitely talk about him when he plays Proximo in Gladiator. What did you think about it from a music perspective? As you said, there are a few set pieces that are very catchy, like Consider Yourself, uh, Food Glorious Food isn't super catchy, but it is very well done and impressive to have such a large chorus of vocals in there. And one thing that really struck me was that the orchestral score blended it all together. So it feels like there's a higher percentage of this movie actually singing songs than there are in other musicals. So in a lot of them, it's, you know, 20 to 30% of the runtime when they're actually singing. Here, the songs are longer. So I think we actually have more time singing, but the score blends it together. So even when there's no actual song playing, right, there's nobody singing, they're just walking down, it still feels like it's part of that whole. So this feels like there's a higher percentage of those, you know, the song and dance routines than there are in other musicals, just because of the way the score backs it up. I agree. I I think this does one of the better jobs in movie musicals of blending the music and the songs in so that you don't really notice that the story is stopping for the song. Mm-hmm. You know, we're 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 a far way away from musicals to where it's you know a studio has a catalog of songs, so they take a package of songs together and try and craft a story around it. But even in some of like the Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals, sometimes it would be the song would relate to the action going on and the story and the emotions that the characters feel, but you still almost have a sense of okay we're going to stop and now we're going to have blocking for the dancing and singing and then we're going to start up again like you would have on a Broadway play. And Reed did a really good job of it just flowing in and out together. Yeah, that is one thing I think is probably more impressively done in this than in any other musical I've seen. So this really does marry the two types of scenes. And some of that is because Reed was directing the whole thing. Singing in the Rain is still my pick for my favorite musical of all time, but really the musical pieces were directed by Kelly and the rest by Stanley Donnan. Right. Right. So they were flipping back and forth and they were passing the baton. So it still comes out as a consistent whole because they coordinated, 
and that kind of thing was not unusual. But here it really does marry well. It, you don't even get a changing camera angle sometimes. Sometimes they're just walking and they burst into song. Right. And the camera is continuous. So it, it is definitely filmed differently than other musicals. I do like that they kept one of my favorite lines from Oliver Twist in the film. The um, are, are, are you familiar with the laws and ass quote? I remember enjoying the line when I heard it here, but I, I can't quote it. Okay, I, I can't quote it exactly either. They're crossing the streams a little bit. There is an attorney out of Ohio, I believe, by the name of Bob Ingersoll, and he wrote a, an article for the Comic Journal's Buyer's Guide, and I think you can find a lot of them archived online, called The Laws and Ass, in which he kind of took a derivation of the quote as the, the title of his column. It's a great column. I recommend it if you um, ever have some free time. It, it looks at legal issues in comics from the opinion of a lawyer trying to apply real-world lies to them. But the quote in the film is, as the synopsis said, Brownlow gets upset with Mr. and Mrs. Bumble, because uh, by this time Bumble has married Widow Corley, and, uh, and suggests that they could be brought up on charges because they essentially stole the locket from Oliver, <laughs> and and basically um, what he te- what Brownlow or Bumble, excuse me, is protesting is innocent innocence, and Brownlow basically tells him, well, you know, in the eyes of the law, you're the more guilty of the two because you're accountable for and responsible for your wife's actions and bumble essentially says well if the if the law thinks i'm accountable and responsible and can control my for my wife's actions and i can control what my wife does then the law's an ass and a confirmed bachelor and it's ever since i've discovered that article in the comic buyer's guide journal i've been a fan of that line so i was happy to see that it stayed in the play yeah i was actually quite pleased with that line too although it's so i like the fact that it's highlighting that a lot of laws we have are fundamentally sexist. It's just odd to have that highlighted with one of the few times where it's sexist in favor of the women instead of in favor of the men. Because mm-hmm. really, well, there's this law, which I'm sure no longer applies. These days, aside from custody battles, I can't think of anything where the law comes out in the woman's favor more often than not, all things being equal. But yeah, that that was a good quote with the... Yeah, if that's what the law supposes, then the law's an ass, and the law's a bachelor. So shall we run through the awards for the year? Sure. All right, so the 41st Annual Academy Awards took place on April 14th, 1967 at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in Los Angeles. Best Picture clearly went to Oliver, produced by John Wolfe, beating out fellow nominees Funny Girl, The Lion in Winter, Rochelle Rochelle, and Romeo and Juliet. Best Director went to Carol Reed for Oliver beating out Stanley Kubrick for 2001 A Space Odyssey, Gillo Pontecorvo, which I hope I pronounced correctly, for Battle of Algiers, Anthony Harvey for The Lion in Winter, and Franco Zifarelli for Romeo and Juliet. We'll have an interesting comparison to the Golden Globes there, because their winner wasn't nominated. Best Actor went to Cliff Robertson for Charlie. He beat out Alan Arkin for The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, Alan Bates for The Fixer, Ron Moody as Fagin, and Peter O'Toole for The Lion in Winter. And apparently Ron Moody was only cast as Fagin after Peter O'Toole was one of the people who turned the role down. 
Best Actress was a very unusual category this year in that there was a statistical tie. So there were two women who took home that award. There was Catherine Hepburn for The Lion in Winter and Barbara Streisand for Funny Girl. Uh, The other three nominees were Patricia Neal for The Subject Was Roses, Vanessa Redgrave for Isadora, and Joanne Woodward for Rochelle Rochelle. Best Supporting Actor went to Jack Albertson for The Subject Was Roses, beating out Seymour Castle for Faces, Daniel Massey for Star, Jack Wilde for Oliver, and Gene Wilder for The Producers. So Jack Wilde was the only nominee from a Best Picture nominated category. Best Supporting Actress went to Ruth Gordon for Rosemary's Baby, beating out Lynn Carlin Carlin for Faces, Sandra Locke for The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, Kay Medford for Funny Girl, and Estelle Parsons for Rochelle Rochelle. Best Story and Screenplay written directly for the screen went to Mel Brooks for The Producers, beating out uh, Kubrick and Clark on 2001 A Space Odyssey, The Battle of Algiers, Faces, and Hot Millions. The Best Screenplay based on material from another medium The Lion in Winter beat out The Odd Couple, Oliver, Rochelle, Rochelle, and Rosemary's Baby. Best Documentary Feature went to Journey into Self, beating out A Few Notes on Our Food Problem, The Legendary Champions, Other Voices, and Young Americans. Best Documentary Short Subject went to Why Man Creates by Saul Bass, beating out The House That Ananda Built, The Revolving Door, A Space to Grow, Office of Economic Opportunity, and A Way Out of the Wilderness. The Best Live Action Short Subject went to Robert Kennedy Remembered by Guggenheim Productions, beating out The Dove, Duo, and Prelude. I have to give a shout out to Duo because it was a National Film Board of Canada production. Uh, Best Short Subject Cartoons went to Winnie the Pooh and the Blustery Day, which was a posthumous award for Walt Disney that beat out The House That Jack Built from the National Film Board of Canada, The Magic Pear Tree, and Windy Day. The best original score for a motion picture, not a musical, went to John Barry's score for The Lion in Winter, beating out scores for The Fox, Planet of the Apes, Shoes of the Fisherman, and The Thomas Crown Affair. Best score of a musical picture, original or adaptation, went to Johnny Green for Oliver, beating out Finian's Rainbow, Funny Girl, Star, and The Young Girls of Rockfort. Best song original for the picture went to The Windmills of Your Mind from The Thomas Crown Affair beating out the title song from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, the title song for For Love of Ivy, the title song for Funny Girl, and the title song for Star. Best Sound went to Oliver and Shepperton Studio Sound Department, beating out Bullet, Finian's Rainbow, Funny Girl, and Star. Best Foreign Language Film went to War and Peace out of the USSR, beating out The Boys of Paul Street, The Fireman's Ball, The Girl with the Pistol, and Stolen Kisses. Best Costume Design went to Romeo and Juliet, beating out The Lion in Winter, Oliver, Planet of the Apes, and Star. Best Art Direction went to Oliver, beating out 2001 A Space Odyssey, The Shoes of the Fisherman, Star, and War and Peace. Best Cinematography went to Romeo and Juliet, beating out Funny Girl, Ice Station Zebra, Oliver, and Star. Best Film Editing went to Bullet, beating out Funny Girl, The Odd Couple, Oliver, and Wild in the Streets. The Best Special Visual Effects went to 2001 A Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick was named solely for that award. He would be sued later by Douglas Trumbull, who was officially in charge of visual effects for the work he did. Trumbull felt Kubrick was stealing his credit. In any event, the effects from 2001 A Space Odyssey beat out the effects for Ice Station Zebra. So there were 11 nominations for Oliver, 8 for Funny Girl, 7 each for Lion and Winter and Star, 4 each for 2001, Rochelle Rochelle and Romeo and Juliet, 3 for Faces, 
And two each for Battle of Algiers, Bullet, Finian's Rainbow, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, Ice Station Zebra, Odd Couple, Planet of the Apes, The Producers, Rosemary's Baby, The Shoes of the Fishermen, The Subject Was Roses, The Thomas Crown Affair, and War and Peace. Multiple award winners went to Oliver for five competitive awards and an honorary that we will get to in a moment. Three awards went to The Lion of Winter, and two went to Romeo and Juliet. The Gene Herschelt Humanitarian Award went to Martha Ray. Honorary awards went to Walter Matthau. Or, sorry, went to John Chambers. Walter Matthau presented John Chambers his award for Outstanding Makeup Achievement for Planet of the Apes. And Diane Carroll presented Anna White her award for Outstanding Choreography Achievement for Oliver. All right, so those are the awards. So before we get to the, the big discussion, are there any of the categories you'd like to comment on? Just, well, I thought it was worth mentioning today the makeup achievement would not be an honorary award. There's now a category for outstanding makeup and hairstyling, but there is no standing category for recognizing choreography. So if they were to do something similar today, it would have to be another honorary award. Really surprised 2001 didn't end up in best film editing. Yeah, I have some some thoughts on that, which is that big discussion I was alluding to. Okay, so I'll I'll, I'll hold it. <laughs> I, I was purposefully avoiding um, Best Picture, but the, that was one that stood out to me. Costume design, I still think we're in an area, in an era where period rules. And I think if you separate the makeup from the actual costumes, I could see why Planet of the Apes was nominated but didn't win in that category. I kind of think, again, I'm not trying to drag you into the big conversation. I know that to be nominated for Best Song, you have to be an original song to the film, which is, again, why, you know, while four or five of the songs from Oliver probably would be suitable to be in this list, none of them were eligible. But does the music have to be specifically composed for the film to qualify for best score? For the best original score, yes. But this year they had that category, best score of a musical picture, original or adaptation. So this is where Oliver won, because they were adapting the stage play score. Okay, because I... Why? So one, I could see Planet of the Apes being in best score. I love the score for that film. But also 2001. I mean, yes, it re- yes, it's composed of almost entirely existing classical pieces. But oh, yeah, in that case, that's why because that's not an original score. Got it? Because they okay. were assembling classics. Okay. Yeah. Th- th- then that makes sense. Because I was going to say. Regardless of the fact that they were existing classical pieces of music, the way they were used is iconic now. Yeah, you don't know. I remember the the first sort of a glimmer I had of 2001 was when Thus Spake Zarathustra showed up on Sesame Street. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that one, it, it was not original, although an original score was commissioned for 2001. Kubrick just didn't like it and threw it out and had it all replaced. Okay. I guess we can get to the big discussion because I will say because of school I've seen The Lion in Winter and Romeo and Juliet I had a world history teacher that was a big believer in teaching through 
film. So when we were covering the Tudors, he showed us the lion in winter. And I believe in a high school English class one year, we watched um, the Zeffirelli Romeo and Juliet film. I honestly don't have much to say about a lot of the other categories. Normally, there's at least one competitive film, not to drag us too far ahead, Blaine, but there's one competitive <laughs> film that's also in the top most popular list or what have you that I use from Letterboxd to kind of drive what I view for our podcast. But this year, there weren't really any. So while I've watched other top-ranked films of the year, uh, films like Rochelle, Rochelle, Funny Girl, and Lion in Winter weren't ranked high enough to be in the pool that I picked from. Yeah, I can see that. So uh, starting off just looking at what was nominated, the three I've seen are Oliver, Funny Girl, and Romeo and Juliet. And I would pick Oliver. Now, my recollection of Romeo and Juliet is a little bit vague. That was something we saw in grade 10 English. And I don't remember the film as well. I was remember honestly being creeped out by the teacher. Um, she had just gone through a divorce, and we'd already noticed, like, two months into the school year, she was flirting with some of the grade 12 male students, which really rubbed us the wrong way. She did Romeo and Juliet every single year for English, which she's actually not supposed to do. <laughs> Especially since the curriculum stated that 10 and 11 at the time were Shakespearean tragedies and 12 was a comedy. So Romeo and Juliet should have been off the table for grade 12, but she did it anyway. She always showed this movie. She would hit play, go to the staff room to hang out while we watched it, and come back to check on us at random. But she walked in 30 seconds before we see Romeo's naked butt on screen and walked out as soon as that shot was done. And I talked to people in other classes, said, is, is this happening? And yeah, that happened consistently. She knew exactly when to come back to see that moment and then leave. So that's the part I remember more vividly than the movie. But yeah, so of the nominees, I have no problems with Oliver winning. I agree. Out of the ones that I've seen in that list, the only other one that I would really recommend is The Lion in Winter. It is really good. Oliver's just more entertaining with the music and the spectacle and the scale and everything. But in addition to Katherine Hepburn and Peter O'Toole, who got nominated, you have Anthony Hopkins and Timothy Dalton in that same cast. So just based off of um, strength of acting performances, it's worth watching. I can go along with that. Uh, looking at the letterboxed rankings for the year, where they can fit 72 results per screen when I'm searching here, The Lion in Winter is the highest rated of the nominees. It comes in in the 15th spot. Funny Girl comes in at 35. And none of the other nominees are on the first page of results. So Oliver is the third to show up, and that shows up on page three in the bottom row. So we're you know, 200 entries in by that point. That's probably not fair, but okay. <laughs> yeah, some of that, I would agree. If we cut out a lot of the international cinema that is just starting to explode at this time, that would really push it up on the list because there's okay. not a lot of North American product on there. And because Letterboxd will include anything that's cut to movie length, when they did those super cuts of Doctor Who stories for the DVDs, a lot of those started making it. So this first page of results actually has five different serials of Doctor Who from that year because you could find the DVDs that are edited into movie length. Got it. Which qualifies. So 
Well, depending on the Doctor Who episode, I I might not be able to argue with that ranking. <laughs> In these ones, there's Enemy of the World, The Invasion, The Mind Robber, and The Web of Fear. Oh, that's right, because we're talking 68. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's... Even, even as a Whovian and a diehard Patrick Troughton fan, I, I can't say that that's fair ranking. No, I think a lot of... Looking at the little histograms that Lairbox provides for it, it looks like there's some people who are just giving every Doctor Who product a five out of five, no matter what. But going through them, so Lion in Winter has an average rating of 3.97 on Letterboxd. Funny Girl is at a 3.87. And Oliver comes in third at 3.51 out of five. Rochelle Rochelle is 3.45. And Romeo and Juliet is 3.43. Now, the IMDb ratings, if we look just at those five, it changes the order a little bit. So we've got The Lion of Winter is still at the top. Then Romeo and Juliet, which was bottom on Letterboxd, that comes in second. Oliver's third, Funny Girl is fourth, and Rochelle Rochelle is fifth. If we look at those based on how they, just all the movies for the year ranked, The Lion in Winter comes in at 12th for the year, and... Then Romeo and Juliet is number 23. Oliver comes in at number 35. Funny Girl is 44. And Rochelle Rochelle is 55. And that's with a 7.1 out of 10. So they're all respectable scores. Right. But the issue I've had with this year is in the selection of films to be nominated. If we look at Letterboxd, the number one rated film for the year is 2001 A Space Odyssey. Other entries that we see prior to The Lion of Winter are Once Upon a Time in the West, Rosemary's Baby, so those are three and four, and Night of the Living Dead even comes in just above The Lion of Winter. We have Planet of the Apes at a 3.90, so it's behind The Lion of Winter, but ahead of all other nominees. Well, we're still in that period of genre bias. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's a great film, and in terms of, you know, cost-to-profit ratio, probably the most profitable film out of that list, but I don't think Night of the Living Dead would have been anywhere, even in the Academy's radar. But Rosemary's Baby, I would arguably say, is is kind of the start of the renaissance of American horror coming back after kind of the sci-fi horror of the 50s. I go back and forth on 2001, to be honest with you, Blaine. I I remember watching it with my dad and really liking it, but all that stuck with me was the Hal plot, if you will, and I think that's what mm-hmm. most people remember from the film. Uh, you know, when I first started trying to re-watch films in my uh, collection about three or four years ago, uh, 2001 was an early one on that list, and it just did not resonate with me. Though I concede that I was not watching it the right way. Just as busy as I was, I was watching films right before bed in like 30-minute blocks, and with the length and pacing of 2001, that was just a death knell. I watched it again a couple of weeks ago, and I enjoyed it much more than I had on my previous watching. I do think that the the narrative is perhaps a bit too 
obscure or vague to resonate with a lot of audiences. But the main thing that kept sticking in my mind as I was watching it on this most recent watch is that film was easily a decade ahead of its time. I was watching a film made in 1968, and I know that the transition from the 60s to the 70s was one of those landmark milestones in film. So I realize that we're about to crest a big wave, but that's st- I, I still felt like I was watching a film that was made like in the late 70s or early 80s. So considering when it was made versus the what it felt like I was watching, I would easily say 2001 was a, a decade ahead of its time. And I, I I can't think of a flaw with Planet of the Apes. If you put those films in the nominee list, heck, just those three, if you put out, uh, if it was Oliver, Lion in the Winter, Rosemary's Baby, Planet of Apes, and 2001, I would be, I would literally be at flip a coin on any given day, I'd probably tell you a different one was the best one of the year, but they would all be worthy of winning. I can see that. My own view completely open. I've been thinking about this since it was coming, because we've alluded to this. We knew this year was coming. Mm -hmm. Because 2001 is my favorite film of all time. Had I been voting in 1968, I don't think I'd have picked it. 2001, part of Kubrick's goal was to break the narrative structure of film. The first time I watched it, I didn't know what to make of it. It had not become my favorite film, and had you told me as soon as it was done, this is going to be your favorite film of all time, I wouldn't have believed you. It did take multiple exposures for me to really understand what Kubrick was going for. So in this case, even though I do think it it is probably the most innovative film since Birth of a Nation, although with much better morals, I don't have any issues with the audiences of 1968 who probably saw it once in theaters and that's it when they were voting from overlooking it for the awards for that that big award if i were voting in 1968 i haven't seen once upon a time in the west yet although imdb voters put that at number one 2001 they have as the third best of the year behind uh, the golden calf and then we've got rosemary's baby at number six planet of the apes at seven In 1968, I likely would have voted for Rosemary's Baby. I saw that once in the 1990s and was blown away. Google didn't exist yet, so I fired up the dial-up modem, called into the university system, and ran Roman Polanski's name through Webcrawler to find other films by this genius. And the first few results were not about the films. (laughs) So my voting would have changed completely by today. So... Planet of the Apes would have been a serious contender. I probably, in 1968, having seen every film once, I probably would have leaned to Rosemary's Baby over Planet of the Apes. Now I can no longer stomach a Polanski film, knowing what he did a few years after Rosemary's Baby. I just, I can't get past that name. I try to separate the art from the artist, but what he did, I just can't do it. I don't understand why people have worked with him since those events, which I don't think we need to get into. If you ever avoid media based on the behavior of people involved, just blacklist Polanski. Yeah, I I think I think where Planet of the Apes gets the edge from me. I agree with everything you said about two thousand one. I, I still feel like 
the ending is kind of makes the whole film like a prologue to another story, and that's probably what makes me most feel uh, unsatisfied about it, if that makes sense. Is it's like, okay, what's it? It leaves you wanting to know, okay, what does this mean and what's next? And you never get that answer, right? Mm-hmm. I objectively, she is a fine actress. There is something about the tonal pitch of Mio's Pharaoh voice that sometimes sets my nerves on edge, so that sometimes I have difficulty watching films with her in it. That's not anything about the quality of Rosemary's Baby. It is a great movie. I found a lot of the subtle, while there is completely non-subtle satire and commentary in Planet of the Apes, there is a lot of subtle commentary there as well that just pushes it over the edge for me, at least today as i said you know like you brought up once upon a time in the west and i watched that about two months ago and i hadn't thought about it coming out in this year but boy that's that's another good one that that makes me wonder why jason robards doesn't have a best supporting nomination for this year or henry fonda who plays completely against type as the villain in it so yeah just a a, a great year for film and the nominees don't reflect the quality that was going on except for Lion and Winter and Oliver. And I can't like, I can't say funny girl is a bad film, but I, I still, I think, and this will be true until the 21st century. I think we are in a period still where the Academy is not viewing all types of films equally for consideration. I think that's a big part of it. And I do know, the backlash from the people creating films of the time required the Academy in response to increase their membership. So now if you're a union member and you've worked in a film, you can vote in your category. So if you have acted in a film, you could vote for the acting categories. If you have edited a film that year, you could vote for the editing categories. It used to be more restrictive and you had to have a certain number of titles on your resume which skewed the Academy voters older. And I think this year is a sign of that when you look at the fact that it's either literary classics, musicals, or both, when other films were truly innovating the genre, getting nominated, it feels like the old guard saying, no, you should make more movies like these because those are the ones I like, so those are the ones we're going to recognize. And sort of poo-pooing the more genuinely innovative films. Because as good as Oliver is, it is taking an existing form and elevating the scope and scale, but it's not truly breaking new ground, right? You've had the set pieces of people dancing in the streets. They might have done it with five times as many singers and dancers, but they're doing what has been done. Whereas with the other films, that's not true. Right. I mean, and don't get me wrong, at least planted a, I guess to a certain extent in the categories in which they truly, truly broke new ground. They got recognized. But like I said, I 2001 not getting a cinematography or an editing award, I, I don't get that. Yeah, and I'm with you there. I think maybe the editing is because he was trying to break the narrative conventions and they didn't really understand that because Kubrick didn't like to talk about the films. 
he would make them for himself. And, you know, had he been alive in the days, well, I guess he was alive in the days of Laserdisc commentaries and a little bit of the DVD commentaries, but he was refusing to do them because he wanted the audiences to come in and make up their own minds based on their own experiences. You know, the the only one nomination that I think 2001 got that it probably didn't deserve, and let's not end the podcast over this as I say this, is probably the screenplay nomination. I, I, I can think of other films that came out this year that would probably, at least based off of what you see on the film and the dialogue in the film, would probably be better fits for best screenplay. That could be. A lot of the screenplay awards are given by actually looking at the screenplay because some of that award is given for how clearly the screenplay conveys what should appear on screen. Got it. Okay. And given Kubrick's attention to detail, a typical screenplay, you get about a minute per page of film. So a two-hour film is usually about 120 pages. It would not surprise me if his 149-minute film had a 300-page screenplay because of how much detail he demanded. So it, it could have been nominated in that category for reasons that we can't see because we're not looking at the screenplays and comparing them. That's fair. That's true. Yeah, because that's, like I said, it, it's my favorite film of all time. If I were to vote today, that would be my pick. But I understand the Academy not recognizing that in 1968. If best meant most innovative, it would hands down be the winner. Like like I said, it it may seem like I'm damning it with fault praise, and I, I'm sincerely not. That film easily felt like a decade ahead of its time. That's true, but at the same time, except favorite film of all time, but when, well, guest of the show Will Pfeiffer and Billy Culpa were talking about it on their Out of Theaters podcast, I was laughing pretty loud when the intro that Billy Culpa wrote said that 2001 A Space Odyssey was Stanley Kubrick's complete history of the human species told in real time. <laughs> it, it does... Oh, okay. I 2001 makes me dread going back and watching Star Trek The Motion Picture because I, I, I've heard from fellow podcasters, you know, Gene Hickman... Or Gene Hendricks, sorry... You know, Scott Gardner on the pro side, sometimes Andy Leyland and others on the con side of the long starship shots in Star Trek The Motion Picture because I haven't seen it in years. And I never really hear anybody talk about the pacing of 2001, and that does make me go, okay, if Star Trek The Motion Picture takes longer to get out of the docking station than it takes 2001 to get in, I might have some issues with Star Trek The Motion Picture. Though, to his credit, I felt like Kubrick was trying to be as accurate as possible. You're not going to whiz and dock something that large with something that large in two seconds. Yeah, he was going for scientific accuracy, which is why he's been accused of directing the moon landing and that 2001 was a prep for it. My favorite conspiracy theory of all time is that the U.S. government asked Henley Kubrick to direct the moon landing, and he was such a stickler for detail, he demanded they film on location. <laughs> but uh, as far as Star Trek The Motion Picture is concerned, Robert Wise falls on the con side. The theatrical release was a work print, 
because there were massive financial penalties for not getting the film out at the promised release date that they would have had to pay the theater exhibitors. So Wise was not happy with the finished product. It wasn't done. He just assembled something and still wanted to refine it. So if you go back and watch it today, I would recommend getting the director's cut. It was released on DVD. Um, I used to be in a Larry Niven fan mailing list with the guy who was the president of the company that did the visual effects for the DVD remaster. He was frustrated because they Paramount would not pay for the processing time to do it in at least Blu-ray quality. So it only existed as DVD. So it skipped the Blu-ray generation and they redid it as 4K. So when they did it as 4K, they had to start from the ground up again. Um, I'm not a contact with the guy who's the president of that company. So I don't know if they were rehired to do the 4K or not, but yeah, I, th- I think they rebuilt it from scratch. But one of the things that Wise did was shorten that sequence because a lot of the most expensive sequences, they had the whole thing in there because that's what they spent the money on. And the editing process going from the work print to the finished draft is when you shorten those. And that process didn't happen. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. So while I understand why some people enjoy it, I also agree with Wise that it doesn't need to be as long as it does to make that impression. And also, if at all possible, that needs to be seen on the big screen because it's a scope and scale that does not translate well to a small screen. That, that really needs to fill your field division to get the desired effect. So shall we move on to the Golden Globes? Sure. Right. So in this one, the best motion picture drama and the 26th annual Golden Globes went to The Lion in Winter, beating out Charlie, The Fixer, The Heart is the Lonely Hunter, and The Shoes of the Fisherman. And best comedy or musical went to Oliver beating out Finian's Rainbow, Funny Girl, The Odd Couple, and Yours, Mine, and Ours, which surprises me that this is the year of the producers, and that wasn't on the list when you specifically have comedies separated. Mm-hmm. Uh, best performance in a motion picture drama. Actor went to Peter O'Toole for Lion and Winter, beating out Alan Arkin, Alan Bates, Tony Curtis for The Boston Strangler, and Cliff Robertson as Charlie. Actress went to Joanne Woodward for Rochelle Rochelle, beating out Mia Farrow for Rosemary's Baby, Catherine Hepburn, Vanessa Redgrave, and Beryl Reed for The Killing of Sister George. When I'm skipping the films, it's because they were nominated for the same film for the Oscar. Best performance in a motion picture, comedy, or musical. Actor did go to Ron Moody as Fagin, beating out Fred Astaire for Finian's Rainbow, Jack Lemmon, and Walter Matthau, both for The Odd Couple, and Zero Mostel for The Producers. Actress went to Barbara Streisand for Funny Girl, beating out Julie Andrews and Star, Lucille Ball and Yours, Mine and Ours, Patula Clark in Finnegan's Rainbow, and Gina Lollobrigida for Buenos Sera, Mrs. Campbell. Uh, best Supporting Performance in a Motion Picture, Drama, Comedy, or Musical. Actor went to Daniel Massey for Star. Beating out Bo Bridges for For Love of Ivy. Ozzie Davis for The Scalp Hunters. Hugh Griffith for Oliver and Martin Sheen for The Subject Was Roses. And Supporting Actress went to Ruth Gordon for Rosemary's Baby. Beating out Barbara Hancock for Finnegan's Rainbow. Albie Lincoln for For Love of Ivy. Sandra Locke for My Heart is a Lonely Hunter, and Jane Merrow for The Lion in Winter. Best Director went to Paul Newman for Rochelle Rochelle, who was not even nominated for the Oscar, beating out Anthony Harvey for Lion in Winter, Carol Reed for Oliver, William Wyler for Funny Girl, and Franco Zaffrelli for Romeo and Juliet. Note the absence of Stanley Kubrick here. Uh, Best Screenplay went to Charlie, beating out The Fixer, The Lion in Winter, The Producers, and Rosemary's Baby. Best Original Score went to The Shoes of the Fisherman, Beating out Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, The Lion in Winter, Oliver, Romeo and Juliet, Rosemary's Baby, and The Thomas Crown Affair. Best Original Song went to The Windmills of Your Mind. Beating out Buenos Aires, Mrs. Campbell, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Funny Girl, and Star. 
Aside from the Windmills of Your Mind from the Thomas Crown Affair, all those were the title tracks. Best foreign film in the English language went to Romeo and Juliet, beating out Benjamin, Buonasera, Mrs. Campbell, Joanna, and Poor Cow. Best foreign film in a foreign language, or I guess non-English language, that went to War and Peace from the USSR, beating out The Bride Wore Black from France. I even met Happy Gypsies from Yugoslavia, Shame from Sweden, and Stolen Kisses from France. New Star of the Year went to Leonard Whiting for playing Romeo Montague in Romeo and Juliet, beating out Alan Alda for Paper Lion, Daniel Massey for Star, Michael Sarazin for The Sweet Ride, and Jack Wilde for Oliver. And New Star of the Year actress went to Olivia Hussey as Juliet Capulet from Romeo and Juliet, beating out Awa Allen from Candy, Jacqueline Bissett for The Sweet Ride, Barbara Hancock for Finian's Rainbow, Sandra Locke for The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. Others, the Cecil B. DeMille Award went to Gregory Peck. Best TV show, Rowan and Martin's Laughing beat out Carol Burnett's show, The Doris Day Show, Julia, and The Name of the Game. Best TV star male went to Carl Betts for Judd for the Defense, beating out Raymond Burr and Ironside, Peter Graves in Mission Impossible, Dean Martin from The Dean Martin Show, and Ephraim Zibilis Jr. from The FBI. And Best TV Star Female went to Diane Carroll for Julia, beating out Doris Day for The Doris Day Show, Hope Lang for The Ghost of Mrs. Murr, Elizabeth Montgomery for Bewitched, and Nancy Sinatra from The Nancy Sinatra Show. So aside from the aforementioned lack of 2001, what really jumps out at me are the new Star of the Year categories going to Leonard Whiting, who I don't think I've seen in anything else, and Olivia Hussey, who has had other work, but the nominations that didn't win were Alan Alda, Jacqueline Bissett, and Barbara Hancock. Hussey's had a long enough career and a strong enough career that I, since New Star of the Year is not necessarily the best, I can't dispute, but but boy, you know, looking back even, you know, five, six years later, I can't remember when MASH premiered. Rob Kelly's going to strangle me. But the the true breakout star of that year in Mel, yeah, considering his what his future career would be in terms of writing, directing, and acting, they, they kind of missed the boat by not <laughs> selecting Alan Alda. Yeah, and it was four years. MASH was 72. Okay. But yeah, that's, that's the one that blew me away. I read Leonard Whiting... Had you stripped off the roles they had and just given me the names, I would have had no idea who Leonard Whiting was. <laughs> so, Alan Alda and Jack Wilde, I know Jack Wilde because, you know, obviously Artful Dodger, I've been reading about him today. Mm -hmm. He'd go on to star in H.R. Puffin stuff as well. So, yeah, they've had careers, but of the new stars, male or female, the ones that left the biggest impression, I'd say Alan Alda's first and probably Jacqueline Bissett is second. So, Olivia Hussey has had a very respectable career respectable career as you said but just not on par with two of the others she would that she beat out all right so any other thoughts on the golden globes no all right well i think we've already talked about what we'd have picked so i guess last item is who would we recommend this to you know if you enjoy musicals if you enjoy literary adaptations you know it, it's not a hundred percent uh, faithful, but and again, this could be a self fulfilling prophecy because this this may be the source for people remembering Oliver Twist the way that they do. But it it at least matches most people's recollections of 
the source material while it it still keeps in uh, adult themes you know there's there's poverty there's abuse you know there's alcoholism all of that's in display here it still rates as i think a a generally good family film we are not too far out from when the MPAA ratings went into effect. So while there are plenty of previous films that have retroactively been given a rating of G, I think this is the only film that won Best Picture that was originally given a rating of G. I, I think you're right. There was actually an IMDb trivia point that I submitted the correction for because they said it was the only G-rated nominee. So it was the first MPAA rated nominee, and they said it was the only G-rated nominee ever. I submitted corrections, taking out that last part because Beauty and the Beast and Babe in the 90s were both nominated. But you may be correct that this is the only G-rated winner of the award. So, And yeah, I would agree with that. It is a, a large-scale musical, so it is a... I would say it is a family film, but because particularly of the abusive relationship between Sykes and Nancy, I wouldn't necessarily watch it with a four or five year old, but slightly older children who are ready to have the conversation where, you know, yeah, that's Nancy is lying to herself because she wants to be in a happy relationship. This is not a healthy relationship. So don't be in a relationship like that. Once you're ready to have that conversation, I would have no reservations about watching this with anyone who's inclined to watch a musical. And the fact that it's a period piece when it's presented also helps it age because it's not one of those things that's so blatantly of its time that it doesn't translate well. I understand it's pretty common with musicals, but still. Yeah, I I think the only other criticism I've seen just to make viewers aware of, and I, I think it's probably inherited criticism in that I think it's in criticism of um, the novel, so people carry it over. I know that a lot of people find the portrayal of Fagan uh, offensive to people of the Jewish culture. I'm not in a position, not being of that culture, to really know if it's offensive or not. I will say, because I saw this brought up frequently in the same writings on the topic, Ram Moody himself was Jewish and took great pride in the role. So, at least from his perspective, I think he didn't feel like he was perpetrating a stereotype or a slur on his people, so it's probably fine. But if you are of the Jewish heritage, I, I, there may be a chance that you would be offended with the portrayal. Like I said, it, I think it's more the the portrayal in the novel than in the musical in the film. But not being of that heritage, I, I, I don't want to kind of whitewash that criticism completely. Yeah, I can see that. It may be stemming from the novel because I can't think of a moment in the film that establishes him as Jewish. Mm -mm. So, yeah, I don't know what he was raised in, but yeah, I don't think he'd be his chosen career as a thief has anything to do with being Jewish. But that, again could be just my insensitivity for not being in that culture as well. I don't know exactly what it is that they're reacting to. So I would want to believe that anything that was there was accidental, but at the same time, they asked Mark Lester to change his name for the stage so he sounds less Jewish. 
So clearly we still have a whole industry worth of people who need to go back and rewatch Gentleman's Agreement. Yes. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so I think that wraps up this year. So our 1969 nominees, Midnight Cowboy was the winner, beating out Anne of a Thousand Days, Butch Cassidy, the Sundance Kid, Hello Dolly, and Zed, the Algerian-French political thriller film. So I don't know if they pronounce it Z or Zed. I know it's Z in America, Zed in Canada. So I don't know how an Algerian-French production would pronounce it. Yeah, so be prepared for whiplash because we're going from the only G-rated winner for best film to the only X-rated winner for best film. Yeah, as I said, there was criticism that maybe they were holding on too tightly to the past. And I think maybe that first year... There's a possibility they overcorrected. I haven't seen Midnight Cowboy yet, so I don't know if that is true or not, but we'll find out. Excellent. All right. So thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Please, sir. I want some more.